Hello and welcome to the second episode of Making Tracks with me, Rowan Reingantz. I am a folk musician, songwriter and theatre maker from Sheffield in the north of England. When I'm making things, like songs or stories, I experience that as collaboration. I'm never fully alone when I'm making something. I like to call people in to my mind, from the past or from the present, maybe even from the future sometimes, imaginary or real. And I like to call in places, places I know well or places I'll never see. I conjure them as best I can and I let them talk to each other. As you'll know if you listened to the previous episode of this podcast, I'm starting this series by looking backwards to where I've been. These first few episodes will each centre around a song that I have travelled with and what that song has shown me for the road ahead. This episode is about a song called Mackerel, which I wrote in the summer and the autumn of 2014 and recorded with my sister on the Rheingant Sisters album Already Home, which came out the following year. Some of the content for this episode is based on a piece of writing I did a few years back for the blog Folk Radio UK. I'll also be sharing some previously unheard demo recordings of the song, as well as following some interesting insights from my Patreon subscribers, who are also welcome collaborators on this episode. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is an online platform where fans can support artists via a small monthly donation, which funds the artist's ongoing work. I'm really enjoying it, and it's making a big financial difference to me in these uncertain times for artists who are usually out playing gigs. And now I've got a bit of guaranteed income, I'm also able to become a patron of some of my favourite artists, which feels really great. In return for my patrons' monthly donations, which make endeavours like this podcast possible, I also share exclusive music every month, and I've got some other ideas brewing too. So if you'd like to sign up to be a patron of mine, you are warmly welcome. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash Rowan and join our little tribe. Episode 2. Mackerel. I made the long trip from my home in Sheffield to the remote island of Senja in northwest Norway in 2014. It was July and never got dark during the two weeks I spent at a tiny arts festival held in an old fishing house called Krokoslotet, hoisted on wooden stilts above the Arctic Sea. The midnight sun burned bright orange as it crept along the horizon just between the edges of the sea and a cloudless blue sky. It was difficult to sleep during those nights, so I spent a lot of time just looking at one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. Majestic green and brown rocky cliffs rose out of the clear green-blue waters of the bay, and the sea there was teeming with fish. I swam most days, jumping in from the platform just outside the house into the gaps between shoals of big striped mackerel that darted and danced just under the water. They were everywhere. I'd never seen a sea so full of life, and over those weeks I learnt, via many delicious dinners, that mackerel had been the main local food source there for centuries, since not many vegetables grow so well so far north, and they were so abundant in the bay because of very localised and small-scale fishing. Inside Krokoslotet in July, there was a summer arts festival going on. 
Framed photographs were hung in old fishermen's bedrooms and along the pier wall, and sculptures stood on the rocks just outside the house. Films were rolling in the wooden huts, and a small shadow theatre was performing in the centre of the house, using some of the ropes and the pulleys left over from its fishing days. The café was visited by families wanting slices of homemade cake, and the wide wooden kitchen table, where we all ate together each evening, was the bustling heart of it all. But despite all the activity, there was a deep sadness in the air at Crocus Lotet. Just before I arrived, a Belgian musician, booked to perform at the festival, had died in a tragic accident after falling from one of the cliffs surrounding the bay. His name was Sam Kernegrecht. I sadly never got to meet him, but I learned that he was a much-loved and greatly respected guitarist, singer and composer. He was just 31 years old, a husband and a dad with a lot of friends. After a week's pause to process the initial shock of Sam's death, it was decided that the festival would become a tribute to him and his music. Hearing this, Many more musicians made the journey to Senya, and we worked over a few days to put together a series of tribute concerts. So I found myself the only folk musician amongst a bunch of incredible jazz singers and instrumentalists. It was challenging and a lot of fun to learn some of Sam's music. Here's a little clip from the final concert. We're playing a great tune of his I learnt called When They Play. It's me on fiddle, Sturla Haugen Nielsen on trumpet, Peter Estal on guitar, and Steiner Agnes on bass. Those weeks spent on Senya was a strong reminder for me of the instinct people have to pull together during hard and sad times, and the healing power in doing so. The death of a travelling musician just a few years older than me at the time was also a reminder of what I still believe is most important in life. When times are good and when times are terrible, make more music, make more friends, find ways to look after one another. One of my absolute musical heroes, the fiddler, clown and activist Joe Scurfield would have agreed with that, I'm sure. Since Joe's death in 2005, also in a tragic accident, I've often thought of his unwavering energy and commitment to music and to people, and I aspire to live my own life in a similar way. I think of him a lot, whenever I'm panicked about a deadline or my social media presence or a a tour schedule or my creative productivity. 
Make more music, make more friends. Find ways to look after one another and be kind, and that's all that matters in the end. I asked my patrons to tell me something about this song. Oshin told me that the place this song conjures up in his mind isn't a faraway place in the Arctic Circle, but somewhere much closer to home. In fact, you can't get much closer to where I grew up than Padley Gorge in the Hope Valley, just outside Sheffield. In his words, the song reminds him of playing on the rocks and islets that pepper the brook and crunching through the frosted leaves in that ancient forest in early winter. I like that this song is geographically movable, across land and between the opposite seasons even. My introduction to this song at gigs sometimes feels a bit like a geography lesson. It's all about boat trips and maps and we're going north, but I don't want it to only live in a faraway place. Perhaps it's the elemental parts of this song, water, rock, leaf, wood, ground, blood, that let it travel and live elsewhere. The day after our last concert for Sam, I went out in a little rowing boat with the trumpet player and fisherman called Stirler. You heard him playing on the clip earlier. I wanted to catch some mackerel, as I'd been eating them almost every day during my stay, so it felt right and sort of respectful to understand that process. I had never been fishing before, so Stirler showed me how to uncoil the line. And no sooner had it dropped down into the water, I felt the strong tug and wrestle of a fish. I was surprised at how strongly it fought and pulled, all muscle and determination not to leave the water. But being, this time, the bigger and stronger animal, I found myself pulling it out until it flopped into the tray between my feet and thrashed around, gulping in the air. It was one of the most beautiful creatures I'd ever seen, with such brightly coloured blue, green and black stripes. And it was so fiercely determined to be alive that I felt an overwhelming urge to throw it back immediately, because I empathised with that desire to be alive. But being a human, and being able to talk myself out of my instincts, I told myself I'd come to experience this, and it was after all the reality of being a pescatarian my whole life. And so we caught twelve mackerel, and returning with just enough fish to feed us all that evening, I learnt how to wash and gut them back at the house. During that fishing trip, and since then, I thought often of the boundless energy and sheer life that exists in each and every fish in the sea. It is the same energy, determination, and in some sad cases, luck, that all creatures, including us, sometimes need just to stay alive. Mountains will remain big and hard to climb. The sea will be unpredictable and full of a whole universe of its own battles between bigger fish and smaller fish, and the weather will eventually wear away our fishing houses, our cafes and concert halls. But while we are visiting this earth, the natural world also invites us to delve in, learn from it, look after it, look after each other. Life and death are intertwined, and life resolutely and necessarily carries on, everywhere, even when it sometimes appears to stop.
Another one of my patrons, Steve, reminded me of an old shape-shifting ballad that I've been aware of for a few years. The Laley Worm and the Mackerel of the Sea, it's sometimes called, and it's an old story of transformation and magic. It's strange how my encounters with these animals had given me a strong sense of their power of transformation. They're living at the edge of life. They're mesmerising, shimmering spectacle and lightning speeds. And it's these characteristics that are also in much older songs. They speak to each other. Another one of my patrons, Graham, posted to me about the song. An untimely death is a shocking and unawful thing. A life not lived, regardless of how well one knew someone, is disturbing. Painful even to contemplate. And this made me want to say something about the sadness of this true story and also the dangers of writing songs from someone else's lived and hard reality of grief and pain and loss. I'm really aware of my responsibility as a songwriter to not only honour someone else's true experience, but also to sort of bring the song away from it, beyond it, and into a place that speaks to more than just to that experience, which I do not own and I cannot pretend to know. It's a really tricky balance, and I'm not sure I fully achieved it with this song. I think I've learnt more about song-making since. I believe the emotional weight of a song cannot be mostly the sadness of the truth it is based on, and that's part of the challenge of writing anything. There must be more to it than just the truth of that story alone. I don't want the song to simply be retelling something so sad that the emotional weight is just that. This is what happened. The emotional weight of a song must be earned by the writer, not stolen or used by the writer from their subject. It feels a bit like standing respectfully in the corridor when you know you're not the person that needs to be in the room. But it's also like saying... I am touched and moved by this stranger's sadness, which speaks to more than just that sadness alone. Some songs do feel heavier when you learn the context or the true inspiration, or even the real life of the writer. Tracy Chapman's lyrics are weightier when you read more about her childhood or her early life of poverty. But before you do that, importantly, the songs are heavy enough. They speak to commonality and they speak to the margins in a way that instantly lands. And they are the sort of songs I continue to look up to and learn from. People often ask songwriters, what comes first, the melody or the lyrics? For me, most of the songs I've made are written either from a tugging peripheral feeling, which I try not to look at too closely for as long as possible, or from a kind of intangible shape that's formed by melody and words together. This song is definitely one of those. I did have the tugging feeling as I left Senya. I knew I wanted and needed to make something out of the mixture of pain and beauty I had experienced there. I tuned my viola into an open tuning reminiscent of the Hardanger fiddle, the national instrument of Norway, and I caught the circling viola riff for a long time, I had to slowly bring it into focus, the rhythm and the shape of the opening lines. It's always been a slippery song, strangely structured without a chorus or really much movement from the main chords. It settles quickly, it doesn't move far. 
You can hear me working out how it's going to sit and slide together in this little recording. The higher fiddle part that Anna plays on the album recording is also inspired by Scandinavian fiddling. And I recorded the sea sounds that are at the end of the track at Little Bay on the Clinton Peninsula in North Wales, where I swam a lot after I was at Senja. There are also sometimes shoals of mackerel there. The short melody played and hummed at the end of the track is taken from one of the songs that was going around in my head after we'd sung it together in Crocus Lotet around the kitchen table. Mackerel was one of the last songs we recorded for our album Already Home, which was expertly engineered by Dylan Fowler in Studio Fellinfach near Abergavenny. The music video we made for this song we filmed at Start Point Lighthouse in Devon on the day that thousands of tiny silver fish were washed up onto the beach. Dominic, another of my patrons, describes how the song takes him back to West Dorset and in his words, the incredible sight of shoals of mackerel driving smaller fish towards the shore at West Bay to feed on them and so many small fish literally beaching themselves trying to escape. The sight is almost indescribable the sand quivering with gasping fish. Another patron of mine, Lucy, said this song reminded her of her first trip to the Royal Albert Hall, watching me and my sister pick up our BBC Radio 2 Folk Award for Best Original Track. It was my first trip there too, and it was an incredible moment for us to hear our names read out, even in the nominations. And receiving our award from the legendary Michael Morpurgo, who I definitely hugged for a few seconds too long, was extremely memorable, as was turning around and seeing the vastness of that room, with so many people seemingly everywhere in a big dome around us. We weren't expecting that, and did, from what I recall, a sort of endearingly self-deprecating and incredibly surprised speech. I remember people commenting on the realness of our reaction back then, And it makes me a bit sad to think about that. Yes, we were probably a bit less cynical then about 
the music industry, award ceremonies. It's not to say that they're less meaningful to me now, but it's just that as time goes on, one realises more and more that it's such a concoction of luck and timing, connections and chance that give some artists that kind of platform, while some never get it. We never thought our song was actually the best, of course. That is obviously ludicrous and impossible. Sometimes I do long for a way that music might be celebrated and really held up by our industry with an absence of competition, which I believe really has no place in the making of or participation in good music and art. Again, I think of Joe Scurfield, his commitment to music and people, to reaching out with integrity and authenticity, his lack of glitzy awards and his full-lived, too-short life. I took the moment at the Royal Albert Hall as an invitation to write more songs, make more music, connect with more people, which I've been doing since then. In fact, the night after we stood facing 4,000 people and clutching our award, me and Anna sat and sung mackerel to a house concert in the south of England, to 40 people tucked snugly in a living room, having shared dinner and wine and chat. I could see all of their faces clearly, and the sleeping kids on blankets by our feet, and the neighbourly togetherness we were helping make possible. And I felt happy that this song was living well. I'll leave you with one of many demo recordings I have of this song. It eventually came out on Already Home, the Rangant Sisters' 2015 album on Ruby Records.
Thanks for listening to episode two. And if you would like to support this podcast or the other work that I'm doing during this gigless time, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash Rowan Rangantz and find out more. <laughs>